This is a fairly tough chapter in the Bible, so I don't know if you guys like names, um, but we're going to get a lot of them tonight, and a lot of them that are difficult to pronounce. But you guys know this, right? That every scripture, every passage of the Bible is God-breathed. It's theonuptos. It's 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 profitable for us. And so whatever you do as we start, you know, reading through these names, don't tune out. Don't think that God can't use this uh, section of scripture for your benefit. There's a lot of lessons here. As a matter of fact, there's so many that I'm kind of concerned that I'm not going to be able to really give you everything that's here, um, but we'll do our best. And so let's read the chapter, and then we'll come back. And uh, I would encourage you, just in case, how many of you here write in your Bible? Anybody here, do you write in your Bible? Okay, you guys, uh, some people do. And uh, I would encourage you that every time you come to a gate, uh, underline it or maybe circle it, because there's going to be 10 gates that are not random. They're all significant, and there's, all, there's, there's a message when you put all the gates together. And so we read in verse 1, it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Notice it's the only gate that gets consecrated and hung its doors. They built as far as the Tower of Hundred and consecrated it then as far as the Tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built... And next to them, Zakor, the men are the son of Imri built. Also the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazekabel, made repairs. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bayana made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoyites made repairs. But notice their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Well, that would be sad, huh, if that was written about you. But, you know, the Lord notices that kind of stuff. Verse 6, moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Pasaiah, and Meshulam, the son of Besoradiah, repaired the old gate, and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Melatiah, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. And next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, one of the goldsmiths made repairs. And also next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And next to them, Rephaiah, the son of Hur, leader of the half-district of Jerusalem, made repairs. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Hanamaf, made repairs in front of his house. And next to him, Atush, the son of Hashabniah, made repairs. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section as well as the tower of the ovens. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He, notice this, ladies, and his daughters made repairs. How many of you girls like that? You're like, yeah. <laughs> Hanum and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. 
Melchijah, the son of Rechab, leader of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the refuse gate, and he built it and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And Shalun, the son of Kol Hosea, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He built it, covered it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azpuk, leader of half the district of Bethzur, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man-made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. After him, the Levites under Rehum, the son of Bani, made repairs. And next to him, Hashabiah, leader of half the district of Keilah, made repairs for his district. And after him, their brethren under Bavai, the son of Hanadad, leader of the other half of the district of Keilah, made repairs. And next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, the leader of Mizpah, repaired another section in front of the ascent to the armory at the buttress. And after him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, carefully repaired the other section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. And after him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Kaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. And after him, the priests, the men of the plain, made repairs. After him, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maasiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs noticed by his house. And after him, Benui, the son of Hanadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress, even as far as the corner. Palai, the son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the buttress and on the tower, which projects from the king's upper house. That was by the court of the prison. And after him, Pedaiah, the son of Parosh, made repairs. Moreover, the Nethanim, who dwelt in Ophel, made repairs as far as the place in front of the water gate as toward the east and on the projecting tower. And after them, the Tekoyites repaired another section to the great projecting tower and as far as the wall of Ophel. We're almost done. Beyond the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Immer, made repairs in front of his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaluf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, made repairs. Notice we see this a lot, huh? In front of his dwelling. And after him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate and as far as the upper room at the corner. And between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. Now in verse 1, we started at the sheep gate, right? And in verse 32, we end up there. If you were to look at a map, and I do encourage you guys, when you get a chance, maybe go online, or, or I have some if you want to see a map of it, you'll notice the way that they do the, the repairs. It starts uh, uh, pretty much on the, the north um, east section, and it just goes all the way around. 
You know, and, and when you read the scriptures, the funny thing is the Bible says that God loves his gates. God loved his gates. So why are the gates all messed up? You know, when they're all broken down and the wall is broken down, what it is is a shame. It's a reproach to the name of God. And so Nehemiah, he had that burden and he was no longer satisfied with the status quo. He's no longer satisfied with the fact that the Christian church or the church or the people of God were not esteemed people. They were not separate. They were not different. Their God didn't seem to have glory. And so Nehemiah, he caught that vision for four months. He prayed and fasted. And then he took a step of faith. It took him about two to three months to get here in Jerusalem. And then God just had his hand on him. And together the people had a mind to work. And they would rebuild the walls. They would repair the gates. And God would once again be esteemed and receive the glory. You know, and for us today, you know, I don't know where you guys are in your walk with the Lord. You know, some people, they they're just kind of like content with living like a half-hearted life. You know, one foot in the world, one foot in the church. And, you know, we see it definitely in this world that we live in, the, the Christian church. Oh, man. Um, they are not esteemed. Uh, the world looks at us, and oftentimes they wonder, well, you call yourself a Christian, and Jesus is supposed to be the Savior of the world. He died and rose again from the grave, and you follow him, and look at you. That pastor fell, and look what happened over there, and this person is on drugs, and, and you call yourself a Christian, and Christ is supposed to be the one with all the power? Why would I want to follow him? And so, in studying the book of Nehemiah, what it does is it stirs me up to say, let's come back to Christ and let's live a life. Let's rebuild the walls. Let's repair the gates. Let's enter into a Christian walk that would bring God glory the way that he should have. And so, you know, you come to a chapter like this and you're wondering, well, what does this have to do with it? And it's all part of it. One thing I know is this, is that You know, if I catch the vision, and then let's say you catch the vision, and then together our hearts are knit together, and then, you know, I pray for you, and you pray for me, and you do your part, and I do my part, and then suddenly a local congregation becomes a healthy congregation where every part does its share, do you realize how all of us will benefit from that? That's what this chapter really is all about. You see these guys, all these different names, all these different groups, They are, you know, cooperating together. And later on, it's really cool, because Nehemiah, even though the Lord uses him to spearhead this and to lead it up, you know what Nehemiah does? He gives God the glory, and in one sense, he gives the people the credit. And this is what he says. The only reason we're able to finish this and do this is because the people had a mind to work. He didn't say it was because of me. I caught the vision. I did this, and God spoke to me, and God led me. No, he said it was the people. God worked in such a way so that the people had a mind to work. And so in going through this chapter, again, there's so much here. We're not going to, we're going to kind of go through it real quick. Um, I wanted to read it just in case, you know, there's something there that perhaps the Holy Spirit might speak to you on, you know, but you're going to see as we go through that there's some common denominators throughout the chapter. Um, I'm going to give you guys the first three general principles in the chapter, and then I'll give you the 10 gates and what the message is from God. Because when I see the way that he works his way all the way around the walls, 
to me, I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, uh, I always, I'm always looking for like a, a well-rounded curriculum, so to speak, to help Christians grow. You know, and I'll search, and sometimes I, well, that book doesn't seem to really grasp everything, and that one doesn't, and that one doesn't, and I read my scriptures, and I try, you know, to, to get like a well-rounded curriculum, you know, to help someone grow. This is it. I mean, I'll tell you what, when we go through these gates right here, when we go through all ten gates, you're going to see, and I'm even, I'm even praying about starting like a new believer's, you know, study based on these ten gates. You're going to see, because I know there are some of you here that you you're serious about the Lord. There are some of you here you really do want to grow. You're hungry for God. There are some of you here. Not all of you are like that, but some of you are here. And you know this is going to be, I think, something that God can use in your life to help you grow. And so we implement these three things: the general principle, and then the ten gates. And the first thing I see is just um, the the observation from God's standpoint. You know, I. You know, I, I know in looking at this, I, I don't know how you guys are about this, but Hebrews 6 verse 10 is a great passage. It says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And so Hebrews 6, what he's basically saying is that, you know, as you labor for the Lord, as you labor motivated by love. You love God and you love the people of God. I want you to know this, the writer of Hebrews says, God will not forget that. He is watching you as you're serving him, you know? And I know, you know, in looking at this, it's interesting to see all the names that are mentioned. I don't know, I pray you've been serving God in such a way that you're blessed to know that God keeps meticulous records of all the people involved in ministry, that he knows every name, did you notice all these names right here, and every detail of every labor that anyone will ever do for God, everything. Now, when you go through this and you're with a fine-tooth comb, you're going to find that some did more than others, and some not only did more, but some worked harder than others. God knows all the names and God knows everything about the names of those workers and what they did. And so for us, and we're going to see that is even an aspect of it later when we look at the different gates. You know, I want to encourage you guys to know that, you know, um, maybe you're here and you're serving God and you're discouraged because perhaps you're not getting recognition from man. And that happens sometimes, you know, it happens a lot, you know, you're praying, or you're behind the scenes, or, or maybe you're faithful in some other sphere of ministry, not even involved in Calvary Chapel Almani, but you're doing that, and you're out there, and you're faithful, and you're serving God, and sometimes the enemy comes in, and he says, well, you're not making a difference, no one's giving you a pat on the back, and you don't got your name in the bulletin, and you're not overseer of that ministry, that's okay, because we don't serve men, we serve God, and I want you to know that that's really by far, that, that has to capture our hearts. You know, God sees, in looking at all these different names here, for him to take the time to inspire it by the Holy Spirit so that this is written down here in chapter 3, it's kind of like God's way of saying, I want you to know that I see everything. So the first thing is just God's observation 
The second thing is the church's cooperation. You know, in looking at this, isn't it kind of cool to see next to him and next to him and next to him? I mean, you know, they're just like knit together, you know? It's a blessing to see the teamwork that's involved here, right? Remember I tell you guys all the time the three pictures of a church in the, in the scriptures? Number one, it's a, it's a bride, and so that should stimulate purity. Number two, the church is a building, and that emphasizes God's residency, that he lives in the building. And then number three, that the church is a body, and that should emphasize unity. Because as we're different members of the body doing different things, we are only one body. And so there should be that heart of uh, cooperation. You know, I love the scripture over in Ephesians 4 and verse 15 and 16. It says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself. In love. You see, and so when you read Ephesians 4 and you got these guys that are teaching the word and what they're doing is they're building them up. And so when everybody does their part, that cooperation is part of, man, we're going to feed off of that. And you guys, uh, as we see right here, these guys are all doing their part. God is going to get the glory. You know, Warren Wiersbe said, Nehemiah faced a great challenge and had great faith in a great God. But he would have accomplished very little had there not been great dedication on the part of the people who helped him rebuild the wall. And so if you're here today and you're like, well, I'm not really feeling it, or I'm not really in, or I don't know if I'm really interested in this, then you're going against what the scriptures are, are teaching. You're, you're kicking against the goads. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, the top spot, you know, wherever it is, wherever it is. I mean, for years, I was so blessed to be able to be in different ministries, and I think I've been involved in pretty much every single different ministry. And you know what I did? And I just tried my best to be faithful wherever God put me. And so I encourage you guys to do that, and then the Lord will take care of everything else. But in looking at this, we see them working together. There's 38 individuals that are mentioned. Did you guys notice that? I pronounced every single name properly. Did you guys notice that? <laughs> uh, there's 38 different names mentioned. There's 42 different groups that are identified here. They're all cooperating for God's glory. You know, in looking at this right here, we see they had a mind to work which I don't know how you guys feel about work. How many of you guys like work? There's a few of you here, but most people, uh, they don't really like work. Most of us here admit it. You have a mind to rest. How many of you would say that? Yeah, I have a mind to kick back, you know, and relax and take it easy. But, but ministry does involve work. Ministry does involve teamwork. D.L. Moody said this, a great many people have a, have a false idea about the church. 
They've got an idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into nicely cushioned pews and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their mind. One comedian said, I like work. It fascinates me. I can sit and look at it for hours. I thought that was kind of funny, you know. But to actually get in there, like Henry was talking about today, we need 70 people to work, right? Servants. I mean, it's, I get so blessed. I'll be honest with you. I think the church as a whole doesn't have a lot of workers. And yeah, we could probably use a few more workers, but we are blessed in this church with a lot of beautiful people that, that do work. And I just watch them, man. I, I watch them sometimes. And they're, they're over there, and, you know, and, and they're doing the, the food you know, for missions. Or they'll come in early. You guys don't know this. On Saturday mornings at 7 a.m., some of the ladies come in, and they clean this place up like, like you wouldn't believe. Or people just coming in, answering phones. I mean, we are so blessed in this church. I pray that that would, however, continue to grow. Because in looking at this and seeing how this all happened, we see, number one, God's observation. Number two, the church's cooperation. But another thing that I think stands out that dominates this chapter is a word that I'll use. We'll call it domestication. Domestication. And what that is is the process of making someone fond of and good at home life and the task that home life involves. You know, your, your life at home. And we read this over and over and over again. If it didn't jump out at you, then you're blind. That when they made repairs, that, you know, they made repairs in, in front of their house, in front of their home, you know, and in front of their dwelling. How many times did we read that in going through this chapter, right? And there's a message there for us within that, within that chapter, you know, you know, to me, I think even of the qualifications of a pastor who is to be an example of a minister, right? And the qualifications that, that he has has a lot to do with the way that he is at home, right? We read a portion of his expectations in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 4 and 5. It's supposed to be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? You know, and so, yeah, for pastors, but it's really for ministers. A pastor should be an example. And so you got guys that are building in front of their own house. You know, that's where it starts, you guys. It starts in your house. Question, how are you in your house? If I could videotape you, would you be embarrassed? A lot of you are like, oh, man, please don't do that. Well, I'm going to put cameras in just for that, man. <laughs> no, you know, actually, I think of that sometimes. I actually do. I think, Lord, you're videotaping, aren't you? I think that. And who knows? Maybe one day someone will. will. Man, the cameras are so small. But, but at the same time, you guys know God sees everything. How are you at home? Ministry, it starts at home. It really does. You know, last Sunday we studied about the man who wanted to travel with Jesus and that type of traveling ministry, but the Lord said no. We read his words. We didn't read it this Sunday, but in Luke 8, verse 39, Jesus said to him, Return to your own house and tell them what great things God has done for you. You see, Jesus wanted him to begin in his own house 
And for us, it's important to know that that's where it starts. You know, in going to a leadership conference or in going to a pastor's conference, I'll tell you this. The most common question is, how do you balance family and ministry? Because it's a challenge sometimes, you know? And, you know, of course, we, we, we know God comes first, and then you better take care of your family, and, and, then, and then the ministry, but then how does that work? Does that mean, like, you know, 20% time here, 40% time here? I mean, exactly how that pans out, you know, God will show all of us here how that works. But, you know, I, I remember one time that question was posed to Warren Wiersbe, and he said this, keep in mind that when you invest into your family, it will be a blessing to the church. And when you invest into the church, it will be a blessing to your family. And that's exactly what we see going on right here in Nehemiah chapter 3. They're investing kind of like into ministry, but it's going to benefit their family. At the same time, they're kind of investing into family, and it's going to, invent, invent, it's going to bless the ministry as a whole, you see? And, and isn't that true, you know, for us as here, when you think about it in a practical sense, you raise up Christians at your home, you know, you discipline them, you teach them the scriptures, right? And, and they become, what ends up happening, they grow up and they become Christian workers in the church. And the church is blessed. And then what ends up happening is prayerfully, your children are here in the church and they benefit and they get built up spiritually through the ministry that takes place. We all get blessed by that ministry. And the next thing you know, your family is blessed. Look what, you know, kind of a husband or wife or dad or mom or daughter or son, because of the church, the family gets blessed. They go hand in hand. And so those three things, I think, in, in general, uh, are some of the things that I think we see, the way that God sees everything, the way that we are to cooperate, and the way that it starts at home, you guys. But, but looking at the gates, let's check this out real quick. And, and again, we, start, we read in verse 1, it says, And then Eliashib, the high priest, he rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And they consecrated it and hung its doors. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this is where it starts, and this is where it ends, and this is the only gate that is actually consecrated. And so there's something special about this particular gate. And this was the gate through which the animals were brought into the city. For the most part, these would be the animals that would be offered up in temple sacrifices, right? And so whenever you read about the temple sacrifices, who does that point to? It points to Jesus, right? And, then, and you see, when it comes to life, that's where it starts, that's where it ends, and that's everything in between. It's Jesus Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything to us. And that's where it starts. It starts there at the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate points us to Jesus, who is the supreme sacrifice for the salvation of our souls. Remember Isaiah 53 in verse 7? It talks about Jesus who was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, it starts there. It starts in the sheep gate. It starts with 
salvation. Now, looking at you guys right here, I, I would venture to say that most of you are saved. Um, some of you I know for sure. Some of you I'm still wondering about. You know what? But seriously, seriously, there are some of you here that you may not really know the Lord. You know, and you go to church and you serve in ministry and you said the prayer and, and you might even read your Bible with a cold heart and you kind of flip up some prayers but in all reality, if you were to die today, you'd go to hell because you don't really know the Lord. You've never really given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never even started there in the sheep gate. You know, some people, they play games with God. You know, none of us know when we're going to die. You know, I recently found out my cousin Frankie died, and I just remember growing up with him, and he was just a few years older than me. And next thing you know, I found out he has a heart attack, and, and he's gone. He enters into eternity. There's no second chance. You know, but if you're here and you're not sure, you're like, well, I think I am, but, you know, in all reality, when you look at yourself in honest assessment, you don't really have a hunger for the word or prayer or church attendance, and, you know, your heart is cold, and it's just a religion, it's just superficial to you. It's because maybe you're caught up in religion. Maybe you've never really come to Jesus. Well, that's where it starts. It starts on the sheep gate. And so, you know, for us, I want to encourage you today that if you don't know the Lord or if you don't even know whether or not you know the Lord, that today you would acknowledge the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that he died for you on the cross, he rose again the third day, and that you would get serious about Christ. If there's any sin in your life that you're holding on to, I want my drugs, I want my pornography, I want my anger, I want my pride, or whatever it might be you're holding on to, then understand that you can't have Christ. You have to repent of your sins and receive Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. You see, that's where it starts. I say this to you guys because I love you. And, and you've got to make sure that you know the Lord, man, because I, I cringe to think of the thought of someone one day standing before God at the great white throne judgment, and they were a, a people that went to Calvary Chapel Almani on a regular basis, and they didn't really know the Lord. Is there love? Is there joy? Is there peace? Is there fruit? Is there obedience? Is there a consistency? Is there a hunger? If not, then you have to search your heart. You know, after the, the, the sheep gate, notice there in, in verse 3, it says, and also the sons of Hassanah built, it says, the fish gate. And they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And so you'll never guess what came through the fish gate. You guys know, right? But you never really think about it, you know? This is where they brought in the fish from the Mediterranean Sea. Um, more than likely, they had a fish market near the gate. And there's a message here for us. Because after you get saved, what happens next? You start serving. You start serving. What did the Lord say when he called the disciples? He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men see if you don't serve you're not saved i mean that's the next thing i mean some people they get saved and then they never serve you know and it makes you wonder where they are really with the lord what gifts do you have 
What supernatural gifts do you have? Have you read Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12? Have you identified your gifts and you have discovered them and developed them and deployed them? See, here we see that they enter next into the fish gate. Uh, John Corson said, once we see the Lamb of God and become linked to him, the next thing we're called to do is to be workers for him. And the fish gate, at the fish gate, we do just that. As we fish for men's souls. See, that's why we serve. We're all part of that. You may not be the one throwing out the altar call, but you made it possible for the pastor or the evangelist to do just that. But when you're saved, you have a heart for the lost. You know, and you, and you go and you share. You know, it's kind of funny. The other day we were talking to one of the young guys, a really cool young guy, and he was talking about how he was having car problems and, you know, he went to the mechanic, it didn't get fixed, and he went back a few times and then he had, he had to go back again. And so one of the other uh, sisters, she said, well, maybe the Lord wants you to share Jesus with him because you have to keep going back and he's not fixing your car right, you know? And, 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 it, and it's true. A lot of times we forget that we are called to be fishers of men. What does the Bible say? He who wins souls is wise. You guys, whatever you do, don't lose the, 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 the desire to see people get saved. See, the, we see that the fish gate is mentioned next. After that, look at verse 6. It says, And moreover, Jehoiada, the son of Passia, and Meshulam, the son of Besoadaiah, repaired. The next is the old gate. The old gate. And, you know, this is kind of a tough one. I did a lot of research and reading a lot of different teachers on this. And I think at the end of the day, um, the old gate is, 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 is representative of those things that we know to be true that we have to get back to. Like, for example, if you were wanting to model yourself after a church, what church would you look to? You would look to the Church of the Bible, Right? Oh, well, yeah, that church is big over there, and so I'm going to do what they do, or that church over there, it's on fire, and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's cool. Perhaps you can learn some things from them, but ultimately, you got to get back to the Bible, right? And so the old gate is in reference to those types of things. And not just the scriptures. Wiersbe said this, it's not by inventing clever new things that we take away the church's reproach, but by going back to the old truths that made the church what it is in ages past. They lie like stones in the dust, waiting for someone like Nehemiah to recover them and to use them. You know, something that's interesting is the word rebuilt or, or built is used eight times in this chapter, and it means to rebuild. The word built means to rebuild, literally in the Hebrew, baunau. And, and, and when, you, when you look at the walls, the gates, they needed wood, they needed you know, new material, but from what we understand, the stonework needed nothing new. It, just, it was all there, it was just all broken down and dilapidated, it just needed to be put back up. So here we see that that masonry section of the wall required no new materials, they found everything there that they already needed. And, and there's something about that, you guys. A lot of times we're looking for new, you know, a novel. How many of you here, just out of curiosity, you like to move the furniture around in your house, right? 
I'm like that too, but I haven't done that a whole lot lately. But I remember back in the day when I had my apartment, and I think I did it like you know once a month or something. You know, you kind of move the furniture around, and you and you think you're in a new place, and it kind of you know <laughs> it gives you a good feeling, you know. And sometimes people are like that in the church. They're like, well, I want a, a, a new look or a new church or a new whatever it is. And, you know, and you're looking for something new. Let me tell you something. If it's, if it's never been taught, if it's, like, if it's new, totally new, then it's not true. Right? Because what we need is kind of like the old gate. We need those things that are solid. At the old gate, we're reminded that if it's new, it's not true. And there are those times we need to go back to the book of Acts and rediscover some of the old-time religion. And you guys know what I mean by that, okay? Number four is the valley gate. And, And just so try to think of yourself growing as a Christian, going through these different gates. Next is the valley. The valley gate. You know, right here we read in verse 13 that Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. And this is what happens when you become a Christian. You know, I was talking to a sister not too long ago, and, and she basically came to this place in her life where she wanted to be serious serious about the Lord. And she told the Lord, Lord, I'm not going to have sex before marriage anymore. And she told the Lord, I, I commit myself to seeking you like this from this point forward. And, and she really made some tangible affirmations of what she would do in her commitment to Christ. And she said that every single time that she shared with the Lord these things that she wanted to, to do in order to seek him, that every single time every single one of those things was followed up by a trial that the enemy began to throw her way. And that's the way it is. I mean, you know, for some of you here, you're going through tremendous trials and you're in the valley because you're seeking the Lord, you see? And that's what the valley gate symbolizes, miles and miles of trials and the wiles of the enemy, you know, taking us to the valleys and the difficulties But even though, in one sense, the enemy authors it, God allows it so that we might be changed by it, right? You guys know that passage in James in verse uh, 2 and 3 of chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. If you're going through trials right now, understand this, it's, it's God, you're like, well, God wants to move him or do that to them or you know, change that situation. No, if you're going through it, then God wants to work on you. So many times we listen to Bible studies and we're like, man, I hope so-and-so heard that, you know? Oh, man, hey, bro, I got you a CD. It was just for you. <laughs> Dude, you know, I promise you this. If you're going through a, a, a trial, then God, it's an opportunity for you to grow. There's something in your life that God is, is working on. You know, but not every time do you go through trials are you going to grow. A lot of people, they go through trials and they come out, they come out of it worse. Because when you go through the trial, you've got to keep your eyes on the Lord. 
If we keep our eyes on the Lord, then those tears and those trials, they bring transformation. And that's why we mustn't be discouraged when we enter into the gate, the valley gate, right? Because in God's kingdom, the valleys lead to victories when we keep our eyes on Him. And on this side of time, it is a given that we will travel through many valleys. You know, there's a beautiful scripture in Second Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 26. When you get a chance, I encourage you to look that whole thing up. But there's a valley there. It's a valley of Barakah. And in that valley, the word Barakah means blessing. So if you're going through the trial, remember what I always say, the greater the pain, I think in one sense, the greater the purpose. Don't be down. Don't be discouraged. Don't be depressed or oppressed. If you're going through a tremendous trial, consider it a great opportunity. Count it all joy. Joy. There should be joy in your life if you're going through trials. Why? Because God is working on us. You know, in the valley of Baraka, it means that they blessed the Lord. You read that passage. They blessed the Lord in the valley. But prior to the valley of Baraka, there's the valley of Baca. And you guys know what Baca means. Baca means tears. And so there's going to be pain and there's going to be difficulties and there's going to be weeping. Well, what does the Bible say? In Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning right? As you rebuild the walls and go through life through the gates of God, look what he does. You know, next in in verse 13, uh, we have the the valley gate. It says, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 13, we have the refuse gate because these guys built a thousand cubits, uh, that's 1,500 feet, and then they reached uh, the refuse gate. In verse 14, they repaired it. And the refuse gate... Guess what went through that? No, I won't tell you. Trash. Trash. It was also known as the dung gate, right? And, and, and for us, you know, when going through life, what ends up happening, especially when we go through trials, I'll tell you what, here's a practical way of looking at it. When the heat is turned up, what rises to the surface when God's trying to purify that gold? The dross does, Right? And what God wants us to do now with that, with that trash, with that dross, is to skim it off the surface, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but we have to take out the trash every single day in our house. And I'll bet you that God is working on us in that way too. Uh, The dung gate was where refuse was carried out of the city. And the interesting thing, when you look at that valley uh, that would go outside the dung gate, it's the valley of Hinnom, where the city disposed of its garbage. It was kind of like the dump, right? And then they would burn the trash. Wiersbe said this, that each of us individually must get rid of whatever defiles us. Do you, do, you, do you see your life that way? Do you see your life as God wanting to show you the things that need to go, the attitudes that don't belong, the things in our life that we say, well, that's just the way that I am. And God says, well, that's the whole point. I don't want you to be you. I want you to be like me. You know, this is all part of our holy sanitation, our sanctification, our consecration, transformation, less and less of me and more and more of him, right? 
And so I do encourage you guys to get rid of the sin. Do away with self. I think Paul saw it that way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He said, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung that I may gain Christ. Remember that illustration I've told you guys a million times about that man? He's making a sculpture out in front of the building and he's chiseling away at the big piece of rock and... And, and so the little boy comes up to him. He says, hey, mister, what are you making? And the sculptor says, I'm making a lion. And so the little boy watches him chisel away. And, and so the little boy says, well, mister, how do you know what to chisel away? And the sculptor says, everything that's not a lion. <laughs> you guys, and that's what God is trying to do in our life. You know, today when I was spending time with the Lord, and you know, sometimes you get these word pictures the Lord showed me what sin is. Again, you know, sin, it, when we sin, it breaks our Father's heart. And, and also I was thinking today, when we sin, it's like poison. It's poison to us. And so if there's any sin in our life, I pray that you would just, you would let it go. You know, we surrender the dung, the sin, the self, and then once confession is made, we come to another gate. It's interesting. And man, I'm going to have to go through these really fast. Look at verse 15. They come to another gate and they repaired. Notice it's the fountain gate. Uh, the fountain gate. You know, there comes a point when we say, Lord, I know you. I want to serve you as a fisherman. I'm in your word. I've gone through the valley. I made confession of sin, but I need more power and life. And the fountain gate, it speaks of this place. You know, the fountain gate, it speaks of drinking and experiencing the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit. It really does. You know, how many of you here knew that water symbolizes the Spirit? Anyone here? Okay. How about any of you here know that water symbolizes the Word? Well, how do you know when it symbolizes the Spirit or when it symbolizes the Word? It's very simple. When you drink it, it's a fountain and it's speaking of the Spirit. When you use water to cleanse yourself, it's speaking of the Word. The fountain right here is the Holy Spirit. And we were talking to some of the young adults about this after service last Thursday night and we prayed together to receive the Holy Spirit. It's cool. One of the young guys, he's actually a younger guy, he said, hey, I felt something, you know. <laughs> and you may feel it, you may not feel it, but I tell you what, in Luke 11, the Lord says, keep on praying, keep on seeking, keep on asking. Ephesians 5.18, Acts 1.8, Luke 24.49 is talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know, when you got saved by faith, you know, the Holy Spirit came to live in you. But let's just say you're a Christian here and you don't have power. You know, when you keep hitting the same wall over and over again, it's because you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and what you do is you pray, and, and just by faith, you say, Lord, you promised. You said, I would receive the Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I am, I'm, I'm willing to repent of my sins. And Proverbs says, turn at my rebuke, and surely I will pour out my Spirit upon you. But you have to want that. D.L. Moody he was a minister, and he was effective in ministry, but he knew in his heart that something was missing. 
You know, maybe you're here today and you're a Christian and you know, man, you know, I, I'm, I'm serving, I do this, I do that, but something's missing. You know what D.L. Moody did? He went into a hotel room and he locked himself in that room and he said, I am not leaving until I am baptized with the Holy Spirit. Three days later, man, God just came. God fell on him. God gave him the promise that he said he would give in Joel chapter 2. And so you're here tonight, and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go get a hotel room. I'm going to be in there for a few days. I'll see you guys later. (laughs) No, what's the point? The point is that he was thirsty. He was thirsty. And you have to come to that place in your life where you would would drink of of the water. You know the interesting thing? This gate right here, this fountain gate, was right around the Pool of Siloam, which is where Jesus was, and, and you read in John chapter 7 and verse 37, it says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. And so when you look real quick, and I just want to give you guys this because I think this is so important. You know, when you guys remember when the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, you know, the Lord uh, brought them to a place where they were thirsty, where there was no water. Do you guys remember that? And, um, and the Lord told Moses to do what? To smite the rock. He said, get your rod and you beat that rock. And then when you beat it, then water will come out and you'll satisfy the thirst of the people, right? And so, um, you know, they did that great thing. Time goes by. And then another time they're thirsty. But do you remember what the Lord told Moses? He said, speak to the rock. Speak to it. And, And you'll provide water for the people. But you guys remember what Moses did? Homeboy, he hit the rock. And God got mad at him. You ruined my typology. I told you to speak to the rock and you hit it. But, but what, is the Lord, what was the Lord trying to say? He was trying to say that the first time Jesus was crucified, when he was smitten. But the second time, we don't crucify him again. The second time, all we have to do is pray. And as you pray, Luke 11 says, then his children will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. See? And that's the fountain gate. And you go through this, and I don't want to take up too much time, but in verse 26, we have the water gate. And the water gate, it sounds like some political thing, huh? <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting. And I, and I wish we had time to elaborate on this, but, you know, the, the Nethanim, According to Joshua 9, the Gibeonites, we believe the Nethanim were descendants of the Gibeonites, they were the water carriers. They would carry the water to wash. And what that is, of course, is symbolic of the word of God. It just so happens, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to see it, that Ezra gave the word from the water gate. And so you and I, men, we know the Spirit of God will take the Word of God, they'll conceive a child of God, the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and it'll make us more and more into the image of God. So be reading your Bibles, continue to study the Scriptures. This is how we grow, we go through this whole circuit of experience in the, the journey 
of having a relationship with God. Ephesians 5.26 talks about the washing of the water of the word. Next is the horse gate in chapter 3 in verse 28. What's the horse used for? You know, nine times out of ten, what we'll find in the context here, especially going into Jerusalem, is the horse is used for battle. And you and I, we are in a battle, aren't we, right? I mean, I think of Hebrews 11, verse 3, how by faith we must be valiant in battle. Okay, maybe you're here today, and sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll say this, just messing around, I'll stop, you know, because I don't like to argue, that's my... How many of you here like to argue? I don't like it. And I'll just say something like, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I don't know where I've heard that before, you know, because I don't like to. You know, but um, when it comes to the Christian life, you better fight. You better be ready for battle because we're in it, man. Some people are like, well, I don't want to fight the enemy, you know, but you have to. You know, we have this horse gate where we know even the scriptures say Jesus is going to come back on a horse one day in Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to come back on horses as well, and there's going to be that final battle, right? And then uh, in verse 28, um, we have the horse gate. After that, we have the east gate. Does anybody know what happens at the east gate? Good job, Jackie. Jesus is returning through the east gate. We know that according to Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 1 through 5. It's interesting, when you read the book of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord departed from the east gate, according to Ezekiel 10 and 11. But when Jesus comes back, he will come through the east gate. And so you're like, well, what does that have to do with me, you know, becoming more committed as a Christian? Everything, because he's coming back. If he were to come back today, would you be ready? Are you excited for the Lord's return? You know, that right there, 1 John 2, 28, it says, Now little children abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So in getting ready for the east gate, getting ready for Jesus to return, you and I must abide in him. All these truths, when they're really you know, thought through and prayed through and lived out, all these things contribute to us becoming more and more committed to Christ. And then the tenth and final gate is the Mifkad gate. In chapter 3 and verse 31, it says, And after him, Milkijah, one of the goldsmiths, may repairs as far as the health of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate. And that last gate is an interesting gate. It actually has a military connotation. And it refers to, this is interesting, the mustering up of the troops in order to gather the people together and review their works in preparation for giving out rewards for service. And that's how, man, it all comes around to that one day we're going to stand before the Lord as Christians at the Bema seat. And our works will be scrutinized, not just what you did, but why did you do what you did? And the Bible says that when God judges our motives, then each of us will receive a reward. And you read 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 4, and you read Romans chapter 14, where it says we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so what that does, I don't know if you guys ever think of that day, 
But what that does when you do realize that truth that one day I will stand before Jesus and give an account of my life, not the great white throne because I'm already forgiven. That's for the non-believer, but the believer will stand before the Bema seat. And when I stand before him, realizing that, that time of scrutiny, that time of you know, reward, so to speak, it's, it, that changes me now, today. And that's why even uh, John, in 2 John uh, chapter 1, verse 8, the Bible says, look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. And so, um, in closing, I don't know if you guys got all 10 gates and what they mean. If you did, can you let me know? Because I'm curious. No, I'm just joking. I would love to see your notes. Of course, the most important thing, however, is not good notes. It's not how you mark your Bible. It's how your Bible marks you, right? And for us, you guys, looking at this chapter, uh, so much here, but I do encourage you to know the observation of God as he sees everything, uh, the, the cooperation of the church working together side by side, and the domestication, how it all starts at home, that, that God would do a great work in our life.